Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series looking at the life of Joseph uh, in the second part, in the final part of the book of Genesis. And so, uh, if you remember from last week where we left our story, Joseph, the, the privileged and favorite son of his father Jacob, had been sold into slavery by his very own brothers. And when our story picks up today, uh, we find Joseph in slavery in Egypt uh, to a man named Potiphar. And so, uh, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way that your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, 
the Lord made it succeed. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. One fall night uh, in 2003, a man named Antoine Yates uh, called 911 from his apartment in Harlem. His apartment was a part of a government-sponsored uh, public housing high-rise. It was a large apartment. He lived there with a couple of roommates. All of the neighbors knew uh, that Mr. Yates loved to keep animals. He had dogs and cats around, had his entire life from, a, from the time he was young. And so it wasn't a huge shock when he called 911 complaining about a dog bite. The paramedics came. They got it, he, he met them down at the front of the house. They took him into the hospital. And he said that he had been bitten uh, on his leg by a pit bull, uh, by his pet pit bull. And the paramedics, the, uh, the ER doctors, looked at it, and while the bite was gruesome, it didn't look like the bite of any pit bull they'd ever seen. It actually looked like a cat's bite, except for with a far larger jaw uh, than any of them had, had ever seen on an ER victim. And so, getting suspicious, they called the police. The police went to his apartment to investigate. They walked into the front door, and staring at them was a 450-pound Bengal tiger that Mr. Yates had purchased as a kitten. I don't know if that's what you call a kitten. Uh, had purchased him. And in his apartment, in his small, crowded, high-rise apartment, he had a room dedicated to this Bengal tiger. At first, uh, the tiger ate as a, as a kitten a little bit of food. As he grew, uh, Mr. Yates went on to say that he would leave his apartment one time a day. At about 6 in the morning, he would go to the local grocery store, buy all of the meat. Uh, I should, he also had an adult alligator living in the apartment. Um, at the peak of his personal zoo in an apartment in Harlem, uh, he was buying out 20 chicken thighs a day uh, from the local grocery, bringing it and throwing it. He says that him and Ming the tiger, uh, the tiger was named Ming, the alligator was named Al, um, that they were family together. They did almost everything together. He and Ming, would, if he was working, Ming would be right at his side. They would sleep together. They would cuddle together. He lived with Ming the tiger as family until one day uh, he saw a stray cat that seemed sick having this heart for animals. He brought the cat into his house. The cat saw the tiger and bolted like a smart cat. And, uh, and Mr. Yates jumped in front of the cat to try to save it, and the tiger bit into his leg. Ming the tiger is now safely in a zoo. Uh, Mr. Yates is now safely also under the care of the state. Um, actually, I think he is out now. But you look at a story like that, and you think, what a crazy person. If we're cynical, we could say, you know what, if you get bit by the, on the leg by a tiger, you kind of get what you have coming, right, if you put a 450-pound Bengal tiger in your home. It seems crazy uh, on the outside to live with something, to nurture something, to feed something that one day ultimately has the power to destroy you. We look at that and we think, who is that? Who would do something like that? And yet I want you to consider uh, that the scriptures tell us that each one of us lives with a beast so closely with us, and we take it for granted, 
Sometimes we even feed it and we nurture it and we think that we've got it under control. We think that we've got it at a safe distance. But that sin within us is like this beast that we, that we believe we can tame, we believe we can keep under control, but left to itself has the power to destroy us. It has the power to utterly consume us. It has the power to, to rip apart our most important relationships in our communities and even our very lives. So this morning, uh, we're going to talk about temptation. We're going to talk about the beast uh, that we have within us and how we can protect ourselves from its claws, from its clutches. We're going to look at temptation, Joseph's and ours. You know, Joseph, uh, in this story and in this section of his life, is confronted with all sorts of temptation, right? We've seen already to this point Joseph confronted with trouble from outside of himself, betrayed by his brothers, betrayed by these most intimate relationships. He's dealt with trouble on the outside. And now in today's, today's story, Joseph confronts trouble on the inside that there's something within him that's even potentially more dangerous than what's outside of him. We see Joseph go through a couple of temptations. The first temptation that we see Joseph hit is the obvious one. It's the temptation from Potiphar's wife. That's so Joseph was, was a slave in the house of Potiphar, a powerful Egyptian. Potiphar, we're told, that, that when he had Joseph as, as a slave, that though he was a slave, Joseph rose to the point that he was the master of the house and everything, that, that Potiphar worried about nothing that was under Joseph's charge, that he ran his finances and he ran his household and he ran his business, that Joseph was full of this charisma and this wisdom and this, there was something about him that's identified here, even Potiphar, not, not himself a believer in the God of the Bible, recognized as the favor of God, recognized that God was with Joseph. And so he promotes Joseph to this high level where he has access to anything under Potiphar's control, except for his wife, except for his wife. And that's where the temptation comes. Potiphar's wife uh, is taken with Joseph. We're told uh, that he was, we're told in verse 6, that he was handsome in form and appearance. That's, ancient, that's a Hebrew idiom for good face, good body, right? Joseph is an attractive young man at the prime of his health. And Potiphar's wife looks at him, and she desires him. She wants him. And the language that she uses, uh, you lose some of the force of it in English. But in verse 7, she says, lie with me. It's almost this primitive, like, two-word command. Bed, now. Get over here. Right? It's the language not only of desire, but the language of power. Right? This is also, remember, a, a, a woman whose husband was Joseph's owner as a slave. So this is a, this is a, a power move as well as, as a seduction. And she reaches out to Joseph. She calls him to herself. So the first temptation that Joseph uh, encounters is, the temp is, is sexual temptation. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about sexual temptation. And I do this with some trepidation, not only because it's just always awkward to stand in front of, you know, a couple hundred people and talk about sex, uh, but also, I, I do it with some trepidation because I think that there's a... Some of you may have a caricature of Christianity uh, that says that Christians talk about sex all the time, uh, that all they have ethically is this kind of puritanical view of sex. They think sex is bad. They think the only temptation that they ever really want to talk about is sexual temptation, that somehow sexual sin is worse or bigger or more, more potent than the other types of temptation that are in the world, that Christians just have this 
kind of Victorian obsession about sex. But what we're going to see uh, as we look at Joseph's story and as we look at our own stories is that sexual temptation is in some ways uniquely powerful, right? In some ways, uh, sex gets at our hearts in a way that nothing else does. And it's because of the way that God made it. But that sexual temptation isn't the, the kind of core temptation. In fact, sexual temptation is a symptom of this much deeper and much larger temptation that we're going to see Joseph deal with. And yet sexual temptation is real and it's powerful. Right? In fact, you'll see that Christians, uh, far from having a negative view of sex, have a counterculturally, almost incredibly high view of sexuality. Right? If you read the Bible, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to come away from that with a low view of sex. Right? There's, there's passages of the Bible that we're not going to get into all of it. We don't have the time. I don't have particularly the desire. Um, but that even as, as, a, in, as in the midst of an over-sexualized culture that we live in, I could read you sections of the Bible that would make you blush uh, with the frankness and openness uh, in glory that they talk about sexuality with. Right? If you just look even at the, um, the very first pages of your Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, when Adam and Eve are created, right? Adam's created first. God says it's not good that man be alone. And so he creates Eve. And immediately on seeing Eve, a naked man, they were just told they were naked and felt no shame, a naked man looking at a naked woman, he breaks forth into song, right? That poem, the this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And God is right there in the midst of all of it. So the Bible begins with a naked man singing a love song to a naked woman where God looks on all of it and says, this is good. Right? That's a, that's a pretty aggressive start to the Bible. <laughs> right? So, so we would look at our culture, which, yes, is over-sexualized in some ways, and not say that the culture has lifted sex up uh, to too high of a role, to too high of a position, but that actually it's reduced sex to a shadow of itself. It's reduced sexuality just to a, a small sliver of what God created it to be for us and in us and with us. The Bible, in fact, instead of having a low view of sexuality, says it's so high and so beautiful and so special that it belongs only in the most special and sacred and committed of relationships. Now, the biblical view of sex is that as beautiful as it is, the joining of man and woman in union that the bodily union only belongs in the midst of a whole life union. Right? When we talk about, the Bible doesn't say that all sexual desire is wrong. Sexual temptation is very different than sexual desire. Sexual temptation is the seeking of gratification outside of the covenant. Well, what's a covenant? A covenant is the joining of people uh, in a committed relationship where the whole life, soul and body, is merged together into one. And biblically, uh, the, the biblical authors are clear that the sexual union, the union of human beings and body, only belongs in the joining of human beings in every single part of life. Apart from that, sexual expression always, always, always will lack some of the freedom that God meant for us to experience in it. Right? The New York Times recently ran an article uh, talking about the ways that, uh, that mo this is amazing coming from the New York Times, the ways that our modern sexual ethics, uh, where most marriages, mo most people that get married have slept together before they get married, statistically. 
And that far from what we, you know, common wisdom in our, in our culture says, you know, of course you do that, right? How do you know if you're compatible? How do you know if it works apart from that? And yet this article in the New York Times said that divorce rates have actually skyrocketed, skyrocketed among those uh, who try out before they, before they get married. It quotes one young New Yorker talking about uh, her life living together uh, with the man that she would go on to marry and divorce shortly thereafter. She describes their sexual relationship this way. She says, I felt like I was on a never-ending, multi-year audition to be his wife. That in living together and joining together, she said, I was on a never-ending, multi-year audition to be his wife. Right? Sexuality, uh, divorce from an absolute commitment, is a tryout. It's a job interview. Right? There's an unbelievably consumeristic impulse behind sexuality when divorced, when divorced from a whole life union with one another. You see it in, Pot in, in uh, Potiphar's wife's words to Joseph, right? She sees something she likes. She sees that she has the power to get it, and she demands it, right? And that dynamic is always there apart from the vow, apart from the commitment. To demand uh, the union with somebody's body when you're not willing to give them your whole life your body, your soul, your checkbook, your home, all of it. To divorce out the physical always, always reduces it to something short of what God designed it to be. What did God design it to be? You know, sexuality is so powerful for us. Sexual temptation is such a strong pull for us. Because sex touches on the core of who we're made to be. Right? Every one of us at a heart level longs for two things. To be fully known and fully loved. Right, fully known, absolutely uh, seen in all of your vulnerabilities, seen as you really are, seen just as you are in all of your goodness and all of your badness, to be seen, really seen, and to be deeply loved and cherished and enjoyed. Right? And so, of course, sex, more than any other act of the human being's experience in this world, gives you that, you know, the, the nakedness and vulnerability as well as the delight and the enjoyment that when those thing, two things merge, it, it creates the recipe for what our hearts most deeply long for, right? James Joyce, at the end of Ulysses, you remember Molly's, uh, her soliloquy to Leopold. The, you know, Joyce says the essence of sexual desire, romantic love, is to have another human stare deeply into your soul and to say, yes, yes, yes. Yes, I said yes, I will yes. Right, to be seen and to, and to hear that yes is what we all long for. It's what we're all created to experience. Psychologists uh, have done studies. I don't, I don't know or particularly want to know how they conducted this study. Um, but studies show that, that when men turn to pornography, that when men are, are looking at pornography with, with everything that's on display within it, that men are looking at the eyes, the eyes of the woman in the video or in the picture, what, were the, what men are looking for and what pornography offers a counterfeit of is yes, love, acceptance, desire. Yes, there's hormonal drive, there's testosterone, there's all that, but you can live without the physicality. Human beings cannot live without the yes, without desire, without acceptance, without, without being wanted and loved, seen and delighted in. And so that's the pull of sex. It's the pull of sexual desire. Imagine what it must have felt like to be Joseph. 
right, to see this powerful woman, look at him and say, lie with me. I desire you. I want you. And remember, this is a young man who to this point in his life had known so much betrayal and rejection and heartbreak, who lived his life a victim of his brother's hate, who now lived his life a degraded slave in the midst of a foreign land. For him to hear someone say, I want you, I desire you, there must have been an incredible pull, not just the physical, but this, oh, somebody wants me. I matter to somebody. He felt the pull of sex, of sexual temptation. And then he turned. He resisted. He ran away. Not just once, but we're told day after day after day. He experienced sexual temptation and he resisted. Now, just a word uh, to those of you who are here and you're going, you know what? <laughs> I've experienced sexual temptation in my life. And it doesn't always end with me running out the door victorious. Let's say you, you hear a story like this and you identify and you say, you know what, I've, I've been tempted sexually and I've fallen more than I've stood. For that roughly 100% of you that feel that way right now. We are a community of the sexually broken. There, there, there are not sexually broken people and people uh, who've done it right their whole lives. Right? There's not the church that stands on our pedestal and looks out on the world who's blown it. There's, heaven knows there's not the pastor who has it figured out. We are a community of broken, sinful people. Because we're created as physical, sexual beings, that means that our brokenness and our sinfulness always finds expression in our sexuality, always. And the good news, you know, there's two, there's two stories in the Bible that are maybe, maybe as richly painted as any. Two people, if you read the Old Testament, that come off as heroes, come off as these larger-than-life people. There's Joseph, who, when tempted sexually, did withstand against it. It's amazing. Then there's David, right, who, when tempted sexually, didn't just blow it, right, didn't just tip his toe in the water of sexual brokenness, but did a backflip off the diving board and jumped in. He had, affair, he had an affair. He took the woman's wife and had him killed so that he could have her as his wife. He blew it as big as anyone ever has. And God still forgave him, restored him, and did amazing things through his life. God delights to take the sexually broken and to extend his mercy and his grace, to knit them together into the true intimacy that we're created for, and to show them uh, real life in him, to show them grace. The irony of grace is that it's not until you know that you're forgiven, even in the midst of your sin, that you find the freedom to obey, that you find the freedom to resist temptation. But I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit because temptation's not done with Joseph. So Joseph resists Pot Potiphar's wife's temptation. And what does she do? A spurned lover would be, she takes his cloak and she accuses him of sexual assault. She accuses him of attempting to rape her. She has him thrown into prison. Right? She, she makes up a story about Joseph. This is the second time in Joseph's short life that somebody takes his cloak and uses it as evidence against him. First his brothers using his cloak to say he's really dead. Now Potiphar's wife using his cloak to say he abused me, he tried to rape me. 
It's this image of Joseph being stripped of his identity. First stripped of the identity of the cherished son, now stripped of the identity of the righteous and upstanding Hebrew, and thrown into prison on false charges. He'll spend uh, time in this prison. We're told that eventually two men come into this prison. Joseph, again in prison, proves to be successful. He ends up in the best prison, which I guess if you've got to be there. He ends up in the best prison, and two of the king's servants come in, the cupbearer and the baker. And these two men have two dreams, and Joseph interprets the dreams for them. The dreams are essentially that eventually the cupbearer is going to be brought out of prison. He's going to be vindicated. He's going to be restored to his job. The cupbearer, the, uh, the baker is going to be brought out of prison. He's going to be executed. And he, all he says after this is, please just remember me. Remember me when you get out of prison. And so in the next chapter, the, they get out of prison. The cupbearer goes to, to, to Pharaoh, restored to the, the highest court, and he doesn't remember Joseph. The author tells him that two years of days went by. That's a, an unusual expression. It, it's, in the Hebrew, it seems to mean two years that's, that just crawled by day by day. Two years that just, just day after day after day, Joseph forgotten and stuck in prison for two years. We're told that it's actually 13 years between the time that Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and the time that he finds himself, uh, which we'll look at next week, kind of lifted up and serving alongside Pharaoh. For 13 years, Joseph lives with betrayal, with false allegations, with a false imprisonment, with being betrayed by his brothers, forgotten by these would-be friends that he made in prison. Right, for 13 years, Joseph is forgotten. For 13 years, uh, he sits either in slavery or in prison, unsure of what God's doing in this just epic of suffering. And in that prison, Joseph would have been confronted with what's the real temptation that ultimately lies behind all of our other temptations. Right? The core of temptation isn't sexual. The core of temptation is to believe that God is not good, that he can't be trusted, and that you're on your own in life. Right, that's the temptation at the heart of temptation. If you remember Adam and Eve's temptation in the garden, right, when Satan tempted Adam, he didn't tempt him with sex, right? He didn't, Satan didn't come to Adam and say, hey, I know you've met Eve, but have you met Monique? She's, she's wonderful. She's better, she's better looking, right? She, no, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't tempt him with sex. He tempts him with an apple, an apple. Now, I, I like an apple, I, I, I love a good, crisp, sweet apple. It's great. But I, I, as much as I love a good apple, I don't think that I would, that I would say, you know what, I, I want that apple so bad that I'm willing to throw humanity into millennia of sin and violence and anger and warfare and prejudice. No, no, no sane person would make that. An apple is just not that tempting. But what does Satan say to Adam? It's not the apple. It's the lie behind the apple. Remember, he says, did God really say you can eat of any of the other trees but not this apple? No, 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 God's not. God's not good. God's not to be trusted, right? He's just trying to keep the really good stuff from you. This apple is going to open your eyes. This apple is going to show you everything you're missing out on in life. It's going to make you wise like God and powerful like God. Just eat the apple. So the temptation behind it is, I can't trust God. God's not good, he's not for me, and I'm basically on my own in this world. And for every one of us, 
in whatever form it takes, whether in the, for, in the form of lust or of greed or of gluttony, in every form, the offer of sin is you can't trust God, so you're on your own. So survive. Figure out a way to make it good. Figure out, to get, figure out the way to get what you need out of this life. And so if you're Joseph, and you're languishing, after, you just, just when you think you're getting out of slavery, you go into prison. Just when you think you're about to get out of prison, you're stuck there for another two years. Joseph had ample evidence that he could interpret in his life to say, God has simply left me here to kill me. God is playing with me. God has brought me here just to abandon me. Surely, surely God is not to be trusted. And I'm on my own in this life. We said that sexual temptation is just a symptom of this larger temptation, right? If it's, if it's saying, well, I, I know that I can't be ultimately vulnerable and loved in this life, so I'm going to chase it. I'm going to chase what I know that my heart needs. I'm going to chase it elsewhere. Every, every form of temptation is just a building on top of that lie because if we can't trust God, then we are ultimately on our own. But if God's to be trusted, even in suffering, even in his seeming absence, even in the pain of our lives, even in the temptation and failures of our lives, if God is to be trusted, then it changes absolutely everything. Right? If he really is that good, if he really is that committed to us, then it changes things for us forever. That's the, that's the way that, that Adam was tempted and failed. It's the way, that, the way that Joseph was tempted and in this instance was, was successful, but we know that he failed. Right? We know that he failed in other areas of his life. He failed in his arrogance against his brothers. It's the same way that Jesus was tempted. Right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was, was tested to the point of shedding tears of blood, the temptation was, is God good? Can my father be trusted? Can my father be trusted to lead me to the cross and through the cross to my kingdom? Or is there another way? Right? And Jesus, when he was tempted, unlike literally every other human being that's ever lived, Jesus responded, yes, my father can be trusted. Yes, I can go to the cross. But the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, every way, exactly as we are, and yet was without sin. How do you fight temptation in your life? How do you keep from being torn apart by the beast? You know, I think we can look at Joseph's life and, and get a clue. How does Joseph resist uh, the temptation that, that, that comes to him? Look at what he says in verse 8. But he refused and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, not nor has he kept back anything in this house uh, except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph doesn't look to himself, right? He doesn't say, far be it from me to ever do this because I'm a good person. I'm morally upright. I'm upstanding. I'm, I'm, I can trust in my own strength of will. No, he looks beyond himself uh, to the benevolence of his master, right? He says, no, look at all that Potiphar's given me. I've got his whole house. I've got all of the rights as though I was a member of the family. I've got all of the privileges. Right? Look at how grace, gracious and benevolent my master's been to me. But then he doesn't say, how could I do this to him? He says, how could I do this to God? 
how can I do this to my God? He saw the hand of God's grace behind all of the grace that he'd experienced from Potiphar. Right, Genesis 39 begins and ends with this amazing sentence that if, if, if it wasn't there, Joseph's situation would seem hopeless. It says, God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. He showed Joseph his loving faithfulness. How did Joseph resist temptation? He looked at God's grace, and he said, God's grace is better than what you're offering. Right? God's presence with me is better than the temporary pleasures uh, that Potiphar's wife was offering. If you want to know how to fight sin, it's simply by learning, sometimes the hard way, that Jesus is better than sin. Right? Jesus and what he offers is better than any tempt anything that temptation can offer you. Right? If Potiphar held back nothing from Joseph, how much more in Christ has God held back nothing from us? He's given us the full rights of being just as accepted in his sight as his son is. Just as much as sons and daughters as Jesus. Just as righteous, just as holy as though we were Jesus. Right? He looks on us and holds nothing back, none of his affection, none of his delight, none of the rights of being in his family. He holds nothing back. He opens up to each of us the full treasury that was Jesus's, all of the wealth of heaven. Right? If you want to know how to resist temptation, you don't look at Joseph and go, oh, I can be strong like Joseph. You look at Jesus. Joseph was sent to prison between two thieves. Jesus went to the cross and hung between two thieves. Joseph went to the pit of prison and waited two years to get out. Jesus went to the pit of the grave, endured death itself for us and on our behalf in order to come out that we could know, that we know that we know that Jesus is better and the life that he offers is better than anything that sin can offer. Right? Because of Jesus, because of Jesus, God can look deep down in our souls and say, yes, yes, yes. I know you fully. I see you in all of your vulnerability, all of your sin, all of your shame. And I can say, yes, I can love you and delight in you and offer you real life, real depth, real meaning. And once you experience that love, that mingling of absolute vulnerability and absolute acceptance and delight, then and only then can you stand up in temptation and say, no, actually, Jesus is better, better than anything that you can offer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are tempted and weak, so weak that when we're tempted, more often than not, we, we fail and we give in. Lord, we come uh, weak and frail, unable to stand against temptation on our own strength, on our own might. Our only hope, Lord Jesus, is that your love so flood our souls, that we be so moved to, by your grace and the gospel that we love you faithfully in return. Lord, we so desperately want to be faithful men and women. We want to be faithful to the vows that we've taken uh, to our spouses. We want to be faithful to the the promises we've made as your followers. We want to be faithful, Lord, and yet we are so faithless. Lord, help us uh, to know that we stand before you not on the strength of our own goodness, but on the incredible love and grace of Jesus. 
And then, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us by your spirit to hold fast to our Savior. Help us to not look in any counterfeit place for what we can taste and enjoy truly only in the gospel, only in the person of Jesus. Help us, Lord Jesus, to fix our hearts on you and to stand up and be faithful in the midst of temptation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.